Again, good morning. This was beautiful. It's a beautiful service. Thus far, I'll, I'll, I'll try to continue that, that tradition. Um, I don't know what your Christmas season looks like. Um, I guess it's probably a lot like mine. It's busy, right? I feel like kind of the whole season is all about packing in things in an already really busy time of year. I feel kind of packed in here myself, actually, as I'm thinking about it. Uh, you know, so you got people coming into town, right, to visit. Some of them are going to stay the night, so you've got to put them somewhere. You've got your couch, you've got a guest bedroom. Maybe your kids are now going to be rooming together, which you're super looking forward to that uh, conflict that's brewing. And you, you've got to put them somewhere, so you've got to pack people into your house. Those Christmas decorations that you've got Uh, I'm sure that you just don't have a bunch of extra space in your house because we have things that go up the other 11 months of the year, right? So we've got to pack those things in somewhere. That's an annual discussion that my wife and I have, always amicably. And, And then on top of that, you've got things, like there's always things to do, right? I mean, it's not like the, the 11, other 11 months of the year, we have nothing going on and then Christmas here is like, finally, we get to do some things. No, it's, we go from busy to busy to busy to busy to busy. And my guess is that if you're here, there is some part of you, some, some motivation in your life that you desire for Christ to be a part of this somewhere. You desire to grow close to Christ. This is, this is one of the highest holy seasons of our Christian calendar, the other being Easter. And, and we want Jesus to be central and focused, but it's very, very difficult to quote unquote make room for him during this time of year. So I want us to do today is we, we kind of walk through this series based on the, the lyrics to Joy to the World. I want us to, to find out how we might uh, prepare him room in our hearts. And the idea, the concept of making room for Jesus really comes from sort of that innkeeper uh, that we kind of uh, imagine saying, no, 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 there's, there's no room in the inn for you at Mary and Joseph. Well, this idea of making room, it's actually used metaphorically about three times uh, in scripture. Uh, it's a Greek verb. It's called koreo. So I want us to look at three passages where that word is used metaphorically, and we might learn how we can make room for Jesus in our hearts during the Christmas season. We're going to start in Matthew 19, and uh, that's where we're going to be first. And we're going to make room first for what's unlikable. We're going to make room for what is unlikable. Chapter 19, verse 3, Jesus gets dragged into a very age-old debate about Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. And the Pharisees come up to him and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read what was created them from the beginning? Made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What God therefore has joined together, let no one separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And say to you, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. I'm glad we went to this classic Christmas passage on divorce. I thought myself this, this week, I was like, Travis, what are you doing here? Come on. 
Jesus is calling our attention. He kind of gets sucked into this debate between two schools of thought. One school of thought said that you could divorce your wife for any reason. If you, even if you didn't like the way she prepared a meal, you could send her away, and that was a valid reason for divorce. There was another conservative school that Jesus seems to line up more with that says, no, it's only for actual acts of infidelity. And so Jesus enters into this debate, and like he often does, he rises above the debate, the issue going on. He's like, let's not talk about Moses. Let's talk about Adam and Eve. Let's talk about how marriage was supposed to be before sin entered the world. And what he's saying is, let's not enter into marital commitments. Let's not enter into commitments. Let's not walk down the aisle dreaming of the day when we can sign a divorce paper. Let's stick to our commitments as we intend them to. Let's stick to our commitments when we make them as God intends us to stick by them. And the disciples hear this and they're like, wow, this is kind of difficult. Look what they say in verse 10. They kind of pick up on the fact that this is a difficult teaching. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Wise words, probably the wisest things the disciples have ever said. (laughs) Be in a difficult marriage or never marry at all. The disciples wisely, "Eh, we probably just shouldn't get married. And Jesus surprisingly says to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. If you want to know what a eunuch is, you can ask your parents. Jesus says, there is a valid way to pursue God in the course of being single. So even in Jesus' day and age, being married was seen as the, the high, one of the highest achievements socially that you could make. It was even religiously uh, mandated that you should marry because that's how you furthered the kingdom of God. So to be single was kind of seen as meh. And even in our day, age, we, day we, and age, we see that. As a church, we put pressure on single adults to be married. Now, there's nothing wrong with desiring to be married, but, married, but Jesus is saying that you can pursue God wholeheartedly without being married. And in verse 11, as he says, not everyone can receive this saying. Not everyone can koreo this saying. Not everybody can make room for this. Jesus has just delivered in a short passage two difficult teachings on subjects that we don't really like to talk about. We don't like to talk about divorce. We don't like to talk about singleness. And especially around Christmas time, we avoid these things, despite the fact that around Christmas time, this is when people feel the pain of those events more than any other time of year. A missing spouse, a spouse that's gone, and a spouse that never was. And Jesus is saying, yeah, these are difficult teachings. These are hard teachings, but somebody needs to make room. We need to make room for the difficult sayings of Jesus. We need to to make, make space for the difficult teachings of Jesus. Because being a follower of Jesus Christ means that we follow everything he says, not just the parts that we like. Let me be honest, there are things that Jesus says that I struggle with, that I wrestle with as a believer. I wish Jesus never talked about money. That would be nice. Do with it what I want and I wouldn't have to talk about it from here. Which Jesus didn't say anything maybe about sexual immorality because in our culture today, it would just be a whole lot easier to say, yeah, just go do what you want. Just be nice to each other. I sometimes wish that Jesus didn't say what he said about hell because I would really love it for everybody to go to heaven and be with him eternally. But that's not what he taught. And so as a believer, it's incumbent upon me and it's incumbent upon you 
to take the good things, the, the, the easy things that Jesus say, says and get behind those, but also to get behind the difficult things that he teaches as well. I need to get my paradigm, my schema, my worldview in line with the creator of the world, despite the fact that it's difficult, despite the fact that it's hard. Because Jesus is gonna ask us to do hard things. Jesus is gonna ask us to do difficult things, things that even seem foreign, things that seem strange. If you don't believe me, look at Matthew chapter two. Turn over to Matthew chapter two. This actually is a Christmas passage, verse 13. Now when they had departed, that's the uh, three wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Skip down to verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream again, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Think about Joseph here. This child is not really his biologically. It's not his biologically at all. He's adopted him, so there's a legal, a legal possession in, in that regard, but not biologically. And Joseph gets sucked into this like cosmic battle between God and Herod, who's trying to kill this person that he thinks is going to supplant him on the throne. And so Joseph has to pack everybody up and go to Egypt. Now remember, Joseph is Jewish. I don't know if you know your biblical history, but there's a little bit of baggage between Jews and Egypt. He's like, all right, I guess I'll go to the one place on earth I don't want to go. Also that God can say this was to fulfill prophecy. All right, fine. So he goes there and he stays there a while. Probably gets the last cardboard box unpacked. Goes and lays down that night and he has another dream. Everything's cool now, Joseph. You can go back home. Seriously? They pack everything back up. They move all the way back. Now he can't just go to Bethlehem. He can't just go back to Judea. No, no, no. He has to go around somebody who's also a threat because again, he's warned in a dream. If I was Joseph, I'd just stay awake at this point. He goes all the way up to Nazareth. Now, if you know your biblical geography, Egypt, far south. Nazareth, northeast. It's like going to San Diego, then to Boston. And you know why Joseph does all of this? They tell you in chapter one, verse 19, Joseph was a just and righteous man. Joseph wanted to do the hard things that God asked him to do. He didn't complain. He didn't crack lame jokes about it like I did. He just did it. Because Joseph did the hard things that he was asked to do by God. And we ourselves need to recognize that Jesus Christ is still in the business of asking us to do difficult things. In order for us to make room for Jesus, this time of year especially, we've gotta be ready to do the hard things that he asks us to do. And I know our tendency this time of year is to gravitate towards sweet little baby Jesus. And that's fine, that's well and good. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the wonderful counselor. Let's sing that and celebrate it. 
But please do not forget that that baby grows up to be a man. And that man will live a perfect sinless life for you and for me and will die so that we might be reconciled to God. And one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why Jesus dies is so that we can become a people, a people for his own possession. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you do not belong to yourself. You have been bought with a price. And so when Jesus asks us to do difficult things, when he has hard teachings that we struggle with, the least we can do is actually struggle with it and not just ignore it. Jesus has sometimes hard things for us to do. So how do we respond? How do we make room in our heart, in our minds, for Jesus' difficult teachings, for Jesus' difficult requests, commands on our life? I think the first thing you need to do is to start with prayer. Let me start with prayer. Notice what it says in Mac, back in Matthew 19. He says that, that not everybody can receive this saying, not everybody can koreo except for the one that is given to receive that thing. We pray that God would open our hearts and minds. Because like I said, I naturally gravitate towards the passages I like. I naturally gravitate towards the, the acts of service that are like right in my wheelhouse and don't make me feel uncomfortable. But we need to ask that God would open and expand our perspective, our worldview, so that we might be more in line with what he wants to do. And pray that God would open my eyes to apply new scripture, difficult scripture, to my life in areas that I've never applied it before. And pray that God would help me to use scripture into the lives of other people, in myself as well. We need to pray that God would support me, would strengthen me, would give me the grace to choose the hard path, not because it's hard. We're not like CrossFit Christians, just do hard things because you do hard things. No offense to people who do CrossFit. That's great, you do it, I will not. But we need to choose to follow Jesus whether he asks us to do something easy or whether he asks us to do something hard. And frankly, I need his help to do that. But then from there, I need to start asking diagnostic questions. I need to ask, have I ever, when was the last time I lost something for the cause of Christ? When was the last time I gave something up because I was following Jesus? When was the last time I was merely uncomfortable for the sake of Christ? Or have I just been in my bubble for so long that I never really get pulled or challenged? When was the last time that I chose an easy path rather than the path that Christ had for me? And what were the consequences of that? Who was hurt by that decision? How was Christ hurt by that decision? And then look at your future and ask the same similar diagnostic questions. What difficult thing is on the horizon that I need to begin to make room for? What difficult thing is God asking me to do? How is he asking me to serve? We have a massive service project on Saturday. All the nations, December 14th in Vickery. You're being asked to serve, and really the way you're being asked to serve is in a way that some of us aren't very comfortable with, just showing up. A lot of us want to have like hands, things to do, we're okay with that, but just showing up and being present being engaged, being off our phone, not thinking about the next party we have to go to, talking to people that don't look and act like us, that's a big ask. That's a difficult ask. But the Lord is making that ask of you. And my hope is that you'll join us next Saturday, or this Saturday, rather. Maybe God's asking you to forgive somebody, somebody who hurt you. That's a difficult request. 
but we should forgive as he forgave us. It's not just difficult things, though, that we're asked to do. It's not unlikable things that we're asked to make room for. We also have to make room for what is undesirable. We need to make room for what is undesirable. Let's look at another passage where koreo is used. It's 2 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and he says, make room, that's the koreo, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. Now, I don't know how much you know about Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth, but it is strained. It's a difficult relationship. When my little girl has uh, problems with people at school, we say that that's a hard friend. Paul and the Corinthian church are hard friends. It's not the Thessalonians, it's not the Philippians who they, they really get along well. No, Paul and, and, and the Corinthian church have had some issues. They've accused Paul of basically embezzling the money that, he's given, that they've given to him to use to help the poor. And Paul has commanded them to stop serving idols by, by allying, allying their business profession with acts of idol worship. And it goes on and on. And so Paul basically says, have you ever gotten an email? Sorry, Paul doesn't say that, I'm saying that. Have you ever gotten an email where it's from somebody that you know to be very kind and gentle, but the email comes across really strong and you're like, well, why are they being so mean? And then you get to thinking about it and you're like, wait, 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 this person's always nice. We're good friends. They don't mean this this way. I need to think about who this person is before I read this in the tone that I'm reading it in. Paul's basically doing the same thing. He's saying, think about who I am. And as you read my letter, think about the character that I have and how much I love you, how proud I am of you. And then read the letter. Paul pleads with them that they would make room, that they would koreo him for his character. He reminds them how much he loves them. Because really Paul knows that he's being difficult. He knows that he's being a hard friend. Look at verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that, what, that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. He's being difficult, but he is being difficult so that they might follow Christ. And more than any other time of year, probably in your calendar, you're going to run across people that are hard, that are difficult people, the people that are undesirable, people that you don't want to see. You're going to see those people that you really only see once a year. And for some of you, you're like, that's really too frequent. and don't really want to see them once a year. You wish that the holidays were more like the Olympics. Every four years, you had to see this person and really, you could just kind of pick and choose what events you went to and which ones you didn't. Or you're going to see those people that you actually see every single day for 50 to 80 hours a week. And then you have to go to the Christmas party with your company for what we called in the army mandatory fun. <laughs> you're like, I see you all the time. What are we really going to talk about at this Christmas party? Or you're going to get to see people have different opinions than you politically, so excited that we have an impeachment going on at Christmas time, so many things to talk about at Christmas now, yay, thank you, so excited. You're going to see people who are, aren't believers, antagonistic towards the faith, you're going to hear that same brother, sister, cousin bring up how Jesus probably wasn't born in, Dece we got it, we know he wasn't born in December, 
The pagan holiday, fine. We've heard it before. Let it go. You're gonna, or you're going to have to go to your spouse's Christmas party, and that may even be worse than your own Christmas party. You're going to have to sit there and just concentrate on not embarrassing your spouse while they talk to people that you don't really know. Or you're going to have to spend increased time here at the church, which is great. Like I love all the things that we have going on here, but there are times in our lives where we're walking with the Lord that sometimes the difficult people that we're around are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe you're walking through a season right now where you're just kind of, God's people are kind of wearing on you a little bit. And so it makes it hard to be around God's people so much right now. But I'll even go one step further than that. I'm an introvert by nature. The way that I actually make room for Jesus in my life normally is by study in his word, prayer, solitude, and reading things that other people wrote about him. Being around a whole bunch of people really doesn't, although I think it is important, don't get me wrong, doesn't really Sometimes I view people, honestly, as, as distractions for pursuing Christ. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you, all the, the, the stimulus, you're like, I don't feel like I can make room for Jesus in my day-to-day life because of all the things we have going on. And I sympathize with you. I really do. I desperately wish we lived in a culture that had a slower pace of life. I wish we didn't pack every single moment with something probably because we're afraid to listen to the silence. We're afraid of what, God, what difficult thing might God might say to us if we slowed down. And while I think it is absolutely imperative that we do slow down, we also need to recognize that this is the culture that we live in. And if I think, and if you think, that the only ways that I can draw close to Jesus Christ is by private, quiet meditation and study of his word, and not being around other people, it is my pursuit of Christ that is deficient, not the world around me. I have got to be ready to be around people who are difficult, who are undesirable, because God may want to use them in my life this year, this time of year. If my stability in Christ is never challenged by difficult people, how truly stable am I in Christ? If my faith is so fragile that I have to have perfect conditions in order to maintain it and pursue it, then how valuable will that faith be when difficult circumstances actually come into my life? I mean, consider Mary. Let's look at Luke chapter 2. Turn over to Luke chapter 2. Mary's just given birth, and she has some unexpected, perhaps undesirable visitors. When the angels went away in verse 15... Away from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So think about Mary in this situation. She's far from home. She's probably staying with some in-laws. She's just given birth to her first child, who, by the way, is the son of God. And I've been present for two, uh, two births of my, my two children, and I know that the last thing my wife wants is to be around people, especially people that she doesn't know. I mean, I imagine, and again, remember shepherds were not like the most desirable of human beings to be around. They were not like socially acceptable people. 
So I imagine with the birth of my own children, if I were to walk into my wife's hospital room and be like, hey, there's some hobos here that want to talk to you about a dream they had. (laughs) It's not going over well. But what does Mary do? Mary treasures up these things in her heart. Now the word here is not kureo. That would be nice if it was. But it is a similar concept. She allows undesirable people, people that are probably an inconvenience at this point in her life, to speak into the events of her day and she allows them to shape and mold her perspective of what is the first Christmas. We should probably, if that was present at the first Christmas, that should probably be a Christmas tradition of our own. Letting difficult people, undesirable people, shape our perspective of the holiday season. And so I get it. You're probably sitting there being like, all right, Travis, I know I'm supposed to love people. That's what I'm supposed to do this time of year. But I think it's got to be more nuanced than that. You can't just go in half-cocked with a, well, I'm going to love people better at Christmas. That's not a plan. That's a dream that's going to fall the first time that person says something that grates on your nerves. You and I both know that. We've got to be more intentional than that. So odds are you already know the difficult people you're going to see this year. You know exactly who I'm talking about. So start praying now. And don't start praying that you won't have to see them. That's not (laughs) the prayer. Pray that God would use you to bring light into their life. Pray that God would now give you patience with them. That God would begin to transform your heart for them. Pray that God would give you the words to say when they start in on that thing that you know they're going to start in on, that absolutely drives you crazy. Pray also that God would use them to show you something new about his character. Pray that he would open your eyes to see how you are a difficult person. And if you don't have difficult people in your life, I've got bad news. You're the difficult person. Maybe seek forgiveness about how you've been difficult in the past. Maybe you were the squeaky wheel at Christmas last year. Maybe offer up forgiveness. Maybe seek forgiveness. Be a peacemaker. All of us have warring factions around. Don't enter into gossip. Don't try and join one side or another. Be a peacemaker at Christmas. But also don't be afraid to be a difficult person. Wait a minute, Travis. You just told me to not be difficult. Now you're telling me to be difficult. Remember Paul was a difficult person. And why was he a difficult person? Remember what he says in verse 9, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Jesus was sometimes a difficult person. You may be the only believer at your family gatherings this year. Maybe you need to be the one that steps up and says, hey, I know nobody else really ascribes to this, but I feel like we should talk about the Christmas story. Be difficult. Bring the light of Christ into your Christmas gatherings. Challenge people that are maybe making choices in their life that are destructive to themselves, challenge them to walk away from those things, to leave those things behind. Be loving, but be firm about it. Challenge other family members and friends when they, when they go to gossip, when they go to factionalize Christmas. Remind them who it is that we worship, that he was somebody who brought unity and seek to bring unity as well. Be difficult, but be difficult for the glory of God. And in that way, you'll make room for Jesus in your life because you will be working on behalf of Christ in those moments. So we need to make room for what is unlikable. We need to make room for what's undesirable. We also need to make room for what is unbelievable. Unbelievable. The last word, use of koreo, I actually cheated a little bit. It's not actually in the Bible. 
but it is in an extra biblical source called the Gospel of James. And James, which is kind of a, I read a little bit of it this week, it's a kind of a, a strange account of the birth of Jesus. And in it, he says that Mary had to make room, she had to koreo the concept that God was going to work in supernatural ways in order to bring about the virgin birth. Because obviously, a virgin cannot become pregnant. So look what happens in verse 30 of chapter 1 of Luke, which is probably a one page over for you. In verse 30, it says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel tells her she's going to be giving birth to the Messiah. And Mary who apparently had a junior high sex ed class, says, how will this be since I am a virgin? This is not possible. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and be called to you holy, the Son of God. So it's not just the Messiah. This is the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. The reason why the angel is telling her this is this is the sign. Elizabeth's pregnancy, although important because it's John the Baptist, Elizabeth is pregnant six months before Mary is because Mary is then in the next passage going to go and visit Elizabeth. And it's not because she's being a good cousin to help out her pregnant cousin. It's because the angel has said, you want to know this thing is true? You want to know that you're going to give birth to the son of, the God, son of God? Go see your cousin. And I bet she's six months pregnant. And sure enough, she is. And that's when Mary sings the Magnificat. She recognizes that what the angel told her is true. And then Mary, or sorry, the angel continues, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary Coreos here. This is where I think she does it. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary, I don't talk about her enough. She says, let the impossible thing that you say happen in my heart. Let it happen to me as you've said. And I think on the whole that as individuals, we really don't buy into the miraculous, the impossible. We talk about Christmas miracles like, oh, I got a, part, a sparking spot at North Park this, this week. That's a Christmas miracle. But we really don't make room for the impossible, for the legitimate miracle, that God may choose to work in a way outside of his natural processes. And I think the angel's words here, nothing will be impossible, aren't just for Mary. Because one, it's in the future tense. Nothing will be impossible for God. The birth of Jesus Christ inaugurates a new age in the work of God in the world where nothing will be impossible. Before God worked perhaps in, in more limited ways with just the people of Israel, but now he's expanding. He's working beyond that. He's working in my life, in your life. Nothing will be impossible. And then one of the other times the word impossible is used is when the disciples can't cast out a demon and Jesus says, you need faith and prayer. And if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move, and it'll move because nothing will be impossible for you. Why is nothing impossible for us? Because the Spirit of God dwells inside of us. If you are a follower of Christ, God is capable of doing so much more than we think he can or will. Because we are products of a rational, modern culture that if we can't explain it, if it's not uh, science, we don't buy it. And that is a sad state of affairs because our entire salvation 
rests on a miracle promised to a teenage girl in a podunk town. Those same miracles can be done today. Maybe not that same miracle, but God can still work in miraculous ways. Because our God defies convention and he puts on flesh to dwell with men. He puts on the sin and the shame of his people on himself and he pays for it by dying. This God opens his arms wide to accept people of any background, any ethnicity, any race. And I don't know what impossible thing you need God to do for you today. But I know you can ask him. Maybe it's something to do with your past. Maybe you look at the things in your past. Maybe you got off to a bad start. Maybe you've done bad things. And you think, there's no way that God could accept me. There's no way God could love me. You maybe think conceptually like God loves us as a group, but God doesn't love me. I'm here to tell you two things. One, I've bought that lie before in my life, and some of my darkest moments spiritually are living out of that lie, that God loves us, but not necessarily me. And two, there is a baby in a manger that proves that God desperately wants to be with you. It's proof. The baby in the manger is proof that God wants to be with you. The Son of God put on flesh despite your past. The Son of God lived on earth to overturn your mistakes. The Son of God died on a cross to throw down the consequences of your failures. Do not believe for one more second that God does not want to be with you. Because he does. And he's proven it. Just trust him. Just give him your life. It's worth it. The hard things he asks you to do pales in comparison to the beauty of having a relationship with him. Do not let one more second go by buying the lie that God does not want to be with you and be with you eternally. Because he does. And he's proven it. On the other hand, some of you could be fixated on your present. You could be in a situation right now that you really wish you weren't in. Maybe you're in a marriage that you wish you weren't in. And the divorce passage we talked about was way too close to home. Maybe you're a single adult, and that was really close to home too. Maybe you're in a job that you just don't want to really be in, and you don't see a way out. For any of you, you don't see a way out in any of these circumstances. It's an impossible situation. Well, we need to co-reo and ask God to work in impossible ways. In your marriage, pray that God would do something incredible. Change your heart. Change your spouse's heart. Change the situation that's maybe eroding your marriage. Do something miraculous. If you're a single adult, pray that God would bring you a spouse. Nothing wrong with that at all. But also pray that God would give you contentment in the midst of that pursuit. Because sometimes that contentment seems impossible and far away. Maybe pray that God would take the toil of your job that you'll go to tomorrow and the next day and will turn it into flourishing. That it'll be work, God-honoring work, not slavery and toil. Ask God to do the impossible. We trust him with our past, our sin and our failure. We trust him with our future, eternal life. Why do we not trust him with our present? Why do we not give him the impossible of our present? And then there's always the future. Maybe some of you in this room are looking ahead to tomorrow and the, the next day and you're thinking, Travis, you don't understand. I don't have hope for anything. And in fact, and I know this because this is the time of year when people really start thinking this way. I think I'm just going to end it. You may feel like it's impossible to go on, that there's no hope, but if the Son of God is a part of your future, there is hope. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what part of the contemplation of suicide you may be at today. Please don't. 
please walk away. Walk away from that. Come to me. If I can't help you, I will help you find somebody to help you. But you do not have to go down that path. There is hope. And it is in Christ. On the other hand, we also have to face the reality that in a room this size with this many people in it, for some of us, this might be our last Christmas on earth. I don't want to be morbid, but it's true. A whole lot can happen in a year, right? What are you going to do with a year? What are you going to do with the year ahead of you? How are we going to make room for the impossible that God might have for us in the next year if this is truly our last Christmas here? The psalmist in Psalm 116 asked this question. He asked, what can I give back to God for the blessings that he's poured out on me? What can I give back to God for the blessings he's poured out on me? He gives you three things to do. The first thing he says is, I'm going to raise high the cup of salvation. He says, I'm going to raise high, I'm going to proclaim the glory of God because he's my rock, he's my redeemer, and I'm going to worship him wholeheartedly. I'm going to raise high that cup. I'm going to celebrate what he's done in my life. Then he says, I'm going to call on his name. So I'm going to thank him for the salvation he's already given me, and I'm going to continue to trust him for my salvation. I'm going to continue to trust him for everything I need. No matter what happens in my life, I'm going to continue to call on his name, and then I'm going to fulfill his vows in the presence of the people. I'm going to do what he asked me to do and I'm gonna serve other people, and I'm gonna serve him, and that's what I'm gonna do to honor God for the blessings that he's poured out on me. I'm gonna raise high the cup, I'm gonna call on his name, I'm gonna fulfill my vows to him. There's lots of things to make room for at Christmas time. Lots of things, stuff, people, schedules. In the midst of all of that, Christ beckons to you And he's not demanding that you make room for him. He's offering to stay with you in the midst of what is unlikable, in the midst of what is undesirable, in the midst of what's unbelievable. He wants to come and set up shop with you and to stay with you and really make this one of the best Christmas, if not the best Christmas you've ever had. Ask him to do the impossible and watch him work in unexpected ways. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, give you thanks for this morning, for these people. Give you thanks that you made room for us by coming and dying on the cross for our sins. And Lord, I pray for each person in this room that may be struggling. This time of year is difficult. Father, I pray that your grace would pour out into their hearts and into their lives that they may know how much you care for them and they may draw close to you. Pray for those that, maybe this is a great time of year, they're loving it. I pray that their joy would be magnified and and extended and encourage the rest of us, Lord God. But thank you so much that you are the God of both the brokenhearted and the sad and the joyful and the happy and everybody in between. We love you, Lord. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen.